everyone. It is October 2020, and welcome to another episode of Amplify. I'm your host, Sam Mishu. Today, we're going to be talking about the October issue of Emergency Medicine Practice, which is devoted to the management of deep venous thrombosis in the emergency department. It's written by three authors, Dr. Sargent, Dr. Galuska, and Dr. Ashurst, and it's chocked full of information about DVT. But we're only going to cover the highlights today, so I highly encourage you to go online, ebmedicine.net, and take a look at the full article so that you can see the diagrams and look at both of the pathways there for diagnosing and treating DVT, which are excellent. Before we dive in, I do want to cover just a brief terminology issue. We're going to talk about studies for venous thromboembolism and then studies for specifically DVT. When we talk about venous thromboembolism, we're talking about DVT and or pulmonary embolism, so PE. And that's a combination of both under the blanket of venous thromboembolism. When we talk about studies specifically for DVT, those studies did not study PE. They're isolated for DVT. And so much of the information we learn about treatment for DVT has come from studies either specifically for deep venous thrombosis or in combination with a population of patients who also have pulmonary embolism. And that gets a little bit tricky depending on the clinical scenario. Some of you may remember the time when we put people in the hospital to treat deep venous thrombosis. It wasn't really that long ago, but certainly in the last 10 years, our treatment algorithm has significantly changed. There's been a large amount of published data, and there have been significant changes to algorithms for outpatient treatment of people with deep venous thrombosis, and so this has become mostly an outpatient treatment than an inpatient treatment. Despite that, there are still questions, things like, which oral agent am I going to put this person on? Do I have to change dosing based on kidney function? What if the patient is pregnant? Do I have to screen someone for cancer? Or does the presence of cancer have an increased risk of DVT associated with it? In addition, you might find yourself asking questions like, what if this person is minimally symptomatic? What if I can just do a D-dimer? Uh, do I need to age adjust the D-dimer? So there are lots of questions that still come up even in the treatment of something that seems so routine as deep venous thrombosis. And this article does an outstanding job covering all of them. Before we dive into the treatment and examination findings for DVT, it's important to make reference to really how common this condition is. In the United States, it's somewhere between 45 to 117 cases per 100,000, which, you know, for most people, that number is a little hard to digest. But here's a, a better way to state it. In patients who are over the age of 60, it's about a 1% incidence. So it's really not a rare phenomenon. It's becoming more common. And when we start to talk about things like recurrence of DVT, then we rely primarily on what the original cause was. And so patients who have prior DVT have a reported rate of about 8% recurrence in the first six months and up to about 30% at eight years. 
And then there's the development of the post-thrombotic syndrome or complication of DVT, which has been reported as high as 50% of people who develop DVT, even with anticoagulation. So there is a significant amount of morbidity associated with it. And when we talk about mortality for those who've been diagnosed with DVT, it's about 3.8% at seven days. That's a higher number than I expected. About 5.5% at 30 days and 14% at one year. So it's not a mild or minor problem that's inconsequential. And that's the reason why this article is focused on the diagnosis, treatment, and management of the condition. Now, when we talk about D-venous thrombosis, we describe them as being provoked or unprovoked. And the unprovoked deep venous thrombosis is one that occurs without some kind of external compression or trauma. Those are going to be patients who have some kind of clotting disorder. So, for example, protein C and S deficiency. Protein C deficiency is responsible for about 3% of DVTs. And protein S deficiency is actually more common than protein C deficiency. Both of these conditions predispose people to deep venous thrombosis. Interestingly, your blood type actually predisposes you to deep venous thrombosis. So von Willebrand factor is shown to be 25% higher in people who have a non-O blood type. So if you're an AB or an AB, you actually have 25% more von Willebrand factor, which puts you at increased risk or frequency of DVT. In fact, you're double the risk. You have two times a higher rate of DVT than someone with an O blood type. Also, factor V Leiden deficiency and prothrombin gene mutations fall into the same category. So all of these are inherited or genetic mutations that cause you to be more thrombotic and put you at increased risk for DVT. When we talk about the provoked deep venous thrombosis, I already mentioned things like trauma or compression, but this category actually includes cancer. And cancer, or having a diagnosis of cancer, is associated with a four-time higher risk for venous thromboembolism. So we're talking DVT or PE. And if the patient happens to be on chemotherapy, that risk is now 6.5 times greater. And so there's a considerable association with cancers. Now, you may be wondering what kinds of cancer give patients increased risk of venous thromboembolism. And the answer is it's the cancers that we see most commonly. So in men, we're talking about things like prostate, colon, lung, and brain cancer. And in women, breast, lung, and ovarian cancer. Interestingly, if you're diagnosed with a DVT, there is a prevalence of cancer of about 5 to 7% within the two years following the diagnosis. So someone who has a DVT that's thought to be provoked, but without a specific cause, they don't have any of the unprovoked reasons to have the DVT, is at actual higher risk of being diagnosed with cancer at some point in the next two years. Hormonal therapy also provides increased risk, as does pregnancy. In fact, women are four times more likely to have a DVT during pregnancy than when non-pregnant. And the annual incidence of venous thromboembolism, so that's DVT and PE, is five times higher 
in the postpartum period compared to pregnant women. That's a very important piece of information to keep in mind. There are other risk factors, things like uh, gestational diabetes, uh, assisted reproduction, postpartum infections, cesarean deliveries. All of these put people at increased risk for venous thromboembolism. We also talk about long-distance travel, and interestingly, I have never read something that quantified the risk, but in the article, the authors mentioned that there's a two-fold increase in the overall risk of venous thromboembolism on a long-haul airplane flight, and the risk increases by about 18% for every two hours of travel time by any mode, and about 26% for every two hours of travel time by air. And if you happen to be a female who is on oral contraceptives and traveling for an extended period of time, now your risk is over 40 times that of any other person for developing ADVT. So lots of risks involved, not to mention surgery and trauma and the multitude of patients we see with multiple risk factors. So that's the hypertensive obese diabetic who has recently undergone surgery and maybe on hormonal supplementation. These things add up quite quickly and the risks begin to increase rapidly. So risk factor stratification becomes very important when trying to diagnose DVT. So now we've gone through all of the patient's risk factors as they're sitting there in front of us and we're preparing to examine them and wondering, okay, well, what physical exam findings have been proven to have enough specificity and sensitivity to diagnose DVT? The answer is none. Although they frequently appear on board examinations and other tests, things like Homan's and Lowenberg's signs and tests, they, they don't have the specificity and sensitivity necessary to rule in or out DVT. So sure, we may do them and we may document them, but it's not something we can rely on for ruling in or ruling out a DVT. Instead, what the authors of the article recommend is risk stratification using some kind of scoring system. And the most common one, the one that's actually recommended by the American College of Emergency Physicians, the American Society of Hematology, and the American College of Chest Physicians is the Wells score. Now, you will remember that there are actually two Wells scores, one specific for DVT and one specific for PE. And the Wells score for predicting the pretest probability for DVT includes questions like what clinical features does the patient have? Things like active cancer, uh, paralysis or paresis, or, or a recent plaster immobilization of the lower extremity. Have they recently been bedridden for more than three days? Do they have localized tenderness along the distribution of a deep venous system? Do they have entire leg swelling? Do they have just isolated calf swelling? Do they have pitting edema? Is there swollen collateral superficial veins that are obvious? And is there some alternative diagnosis that's equally likely? And there are two methods to calculate the answer using this Wells score. One involves a low, medium, and high risk, and the other involves just a low and a high risk. And they have varying cutoff values the important thing to remember is that if you're in the low-risk group, that's the one that's appropriate to use a D-dimer. Uh, if you're going into the moderate or high-risk groups, then you're going to need ultrasound imaging in order to exclude it, and the D-dimer alone is insufficient. 
And that brings us to the discussion of the D-dimer itself. So as the clot has formed and the fibrin polymers are being degraded, the D-dimer fibrin fragment is being released into the blood. And it's got a half-life of somewhere around four to six hours, which means it's going to stay elevated for somewhere around seven days after the thrombus formation. And all of us are accustomed to ordering the D-dimer, but honestly, all of us may not know the specific brand of D-dimer assay that's being used in our lab. And this matters. The enzyme-linked immunosorbent assay, or ELISA test, is actually the most sensitive one with a sensitivity of about 96%, and that's a really good test. But unfortunately, there are others uh, that are less sensitive, specifically the whole blood or latex semi-quantitative assay, which has a sensitivity of only about 83 to 85%. And this is the reason why we can't rely solely on the D-dimer in the moderate to high risk group, none of them are 100% sensitive and their specificity is poor, meaning it tells me there's a clot being broken down somewhere, but it's not specific to DVT or PE. So when we have someone who has an elevated D-dimer, the natural next test is to obtain an ultrasound to then attribute that elevated D-dimer to a clot. If that ultrasound is negative, then that person doesn't have a DVT and we can move on. Or so I thought until I read this article. Ultrasound itself comes in two varieties. You've got the whole leg ultrasound, and then you've got the more limited examination of only the proximal veins of the extremity. And the predictive value for both of these tests is quite different. And you may not know, unless you're performing this examination yourself, which of the two varieties is actually being performed by your ultrasound technician. So another thing to go and examine, because they have different pathways. If you are performing a whole leg ultrasound and it is negative, that's diagnostic and you can stop there. The risk of this patient having venous thromboembolism anytime in the next three months is actually reported to be about a half a percent. But if your institution is performing the limited ultrasound, then it's recommended that the patient be brought back or referred out for a whole leg ultrasound within the next five to seven days. And that's a treatment algorithm that's endorsed by multiple specialty societies, including the American College of Emergency Physicians. Now, if you're accustomed to performing your own ultrasound studies, there have been some published studies regarding two-point ultrasound for a DVT. These studies involved either emergency medicine residents or attending physicians performing a quick localized examination of the deep veins in two locations to reliably exclude DVT. Although the studies by the residents didn't actually achieve the necessary sensitivity and specificity to recommend that approach, the studies that involved attending physicians experienced an ultrasound but not fellowship trained did find that they were able to reliably exclude them. So if you're comfortable with that strategy and you're accustomed to doing your own ultrasound, there is data stating that you can perform that exam and reliably exclude DVT. But for the rest of us, it's going to be the standard approach, risk stratification with a well score, possibly a D-dimer, uh, and if they're moderate or high risk, just going directly to the ultrasound examination. 
Now, up till now, we haven't really spoken about upper extremity DVT, but the same kinds of things apply there. The risk factors are a little different. Things like recent instrumentation or trauma of the upper extremity. Have they had a pick line or a midline or some kind of intravascular line that's been placed? And do they have any other symptoms? There aren't necessarily always symptoms present, which makes this kind of a frustrating diagnosis, but ultrasound is diagnostic. And so you are free to go down that same algorithm, even with the upper extremity ultrasound. Another item we didn't mention earlier was the D-dimer age-adjusted cutoff. There have been multiple studies looking at pulmonary embolism and adjusting the D-dimer for the patient's age. And that is taking their age, multiplying it by 10, and using that as your D-dimer cutoff. And this is where the differentiation between PE and DVT matters. There is sufficient data to say that age-adjusted D-dimer is diagnostic in pulmonary embolism, but not yet isolated DVT. And so the authors of the article don't recommend using the age-adjusted D-dimer cutoffs exclusively for DVT until the current trials on DVT and age-adjusted D-dimer are published. So hopefully that's coming soon. So now we have a patient with a DVT that we see on ultrasound and we need to treat them for this deep venous thrombosis. What are our options? We have several. The first line option is actually a direct oral anticoagulant or a DOAC, things like rivaroxaban or apixaban. These have been well studied. They've been found to be non-inferior to warfarin and to carry a lower bleeding risk. And they're appropriate for treating DVT or PE. So all around, they are a pretty good place to start. There are some caveats, though, to prescribing these medications, and that's those patients who have renal disease, especially those with the very low creatinine clearance where they become contraindicated, or those in whom the cost of the medication is going to be prohibitive. So many of these companies now have patient assistance programs that can help them get the first 30 days or so of the medication for free, but there is a significant cost to the patient when we're prescribing these agents. The second line option would be something like a direct thrombin inhibitor. These are the medications dabigatran and idoxaban. These medications work in a different fashion, and it's important to know that when you're prescribing these, the patient has to be on low molecular weight or unfractionated heparin for five days before they begin these medications for treatment of DVT. Now, they may have indications for prophylaxis without having to require heparin first, but if you have someone with an actual DVT, a direct thrombin inhibitor cannot be initiated immediately. It has to be started five days after induction with low molecular weight or unfractionated heparin. Of course, there is always warfarin, and what we used to do with warfarin was admit patients to the hospital for unfractionated heparin or send them home with low molecular weight heparin injections for five to seven days until their INR was therapeutic. 
couple of reasons why that becomes important, one of which is the method in which warfarin actually takes its effect. It blocks several factors, so 2, 7, 9, and 10, but also it inhibits the production of proteins C and S. And that becomes important because these proteins don't have the same half-life as the other factors. So for the first few days, the patient may have a risk, a slightly increased risk, uh, a sort of transient hypercoagulable state because of low protein C and S levels before the other factors have also dropped down. And so the bridging with heparin becomes quite important in this scenario. The goal is measured with an INR and is to maintain somewhere between two and three on the INR. And of course, it comes with the dietary restrictions for warfarin and all of the medication interactions that we see with warfarin as well. For most of us in the emergency department, we can reliably tell patients that they're going to need to be on these medications for at least three months, but that if they are found to have recurrence or other risk factors, like they're discovered to have an underlying malignancy or some clotting disorder, then their primary care physician or hematologist may actually significantly increase that timeline or just place them on lifelong anticoagulation. But in the emergency department, it's going to be at least three months duration. An interesting question that comes up frequently is that of aspirin therapy. Is there really a benefit to someone taking aspirin after they've completed their treatment for DVT in order to prevent recurrence? And the evidence here is actually conflicting. The authors cite one study that showed a 40% risk reduction in recurrent venous thromboembolism and another study that showed no statistical difference with maybe a 1% to 2% trend toward a risk reduction for aspirin. And so in light of that, even though aspirin is actually not indicated for the treatment of DVT because it's an antiplatelet agent, so there may be some effect there, and some patients may be placed on it by their primary care physician or their hematologist after a discussion of the risks of continuing standard anticoagulation, but just know that this entity exists and currently there is not good evidence for it. Of course, when we're talking about treatment modalities, what other things do we have at our disposal? There is certainly compression stockings, and there is evidence showing that these have the potential to half the frequency of patients going on to develop post-thrombotic syndrome. Now, post-thrombotic syndrome can be present in up to 30% of patients with a prior DVT, and it presents generally with signs and symptoms similar to a DVT, including things like stasis pigmentation, pain, swelling, and leg ulcers. So just remembering to provide somebody with compression stockings can actually decrease their chance in half of developing the syndrome. Another treatment modality is the inferior vena cava filter. Now, a 2015 randomized control study of patients with IVC filters plus anticoagulation or anticoagulation alone showed no difference in recurrence or fatal pulmonary embolism at three months. In fact, IVC filters may be useful in patients with proximal DVT or pulmonary embolism who have some kind of absolute contraindication to anticoagulation but they should be removed as quickly as possible once the patient can undergo anticoagulation and preferably within three months of placement. 
In 2010, the FDA also issued a warning about IVC filters, noting that they have an increased complication rate, especially with things like perforations of the inferior vena cava, filter migrations, and actually an increased risk of DVT recurrence. So they're not a benign therapy, and they need to be placed carefully in a very select population of patients. Lastly, there is thrombolysis, and typically this is catheter-directed thrombolysis, a procedure that our vascular surgery or interventional radiology colleagues perform. And this comes up quite often, but our best current evidence has not shown a benefit in terms of DVT recurrence, prevention of pulmonary embolism, or death. And it does show an increased risk of bleeding complications compared to anticoagulation alone. So current recommendations are that thrombolysis should be considered really only for the patients who have severe DVT with some kind of limb-threatening vascular compromise. And that brings me to another question. Limb-threatening vascular compromise is what exactly? What are we talking about here? And really, we're talking about two very rare conditions, phlegmatia alba dolens, which is when there's massive thrombus in the extremity, occluding the major deep veins, but without occlusion of the collateral veins. And this causes a lot of pain and edema with an extremity that is white in appearance. When that clot burden progresses and then also involves the superficial venous system in addition to the deep venous system, you may find yourself looking at phlegmatia cerulea dolens. This entity can actually lead to venous gangrene. And it does that by clotting off the flow through the capillaries and causing increased hydrostatic pressure and tissue edema. And it's associated with a high risk for amputation and pulmonary embolism and mortality. So these are the kinds of patients where urgent consultation where your vascular surgeon becomes helpful. Okay, if we've covered the spectrum of history, physical diagnosis, and treatment of DVT, what's left? A couple of things that I want to mention. First are some special populations. So there are going to be those people with recurrent deep venous thrombosis, and those people, like we mentioned earlier, are at much higher risk for having an occult malignancy because of that recurrence. There are going to be patients who have a known malignancy. And in patients with known malignancy, low molecular weight heparin is the treatment of choice over warfarin or any of the direct oral anticoagulants. And what about our pregnant patients? Well, the further along you are in your pregnancy, the higher your D-dimer is likely to be. In fact, one study noted that about 50% of pregnant women in their first trimester were already above the normal routine cutoff for D-dimer. Treatment for women with DVT after you've made the diagnosis with ultrasound includes low molecular weight heparin only based on current treatment guidelines. Warfarin actually crosses the placental barrier, and the direct oral anticoagulants safety in pregnancy is still unknown because they also cross the placental barrier. So the treatment of choice in this population 
is low molecular weight heparin. The only caveat here is if you happen to have the rare pregnant patient who also has a mechanical heart valve, you're likely to see that they're taking warfarin even though there is a contraindication, and that would be the only acceptable scenario for a pregnant woman to take warfarin. The last special population is the elderly, and we frequently have conversations like what is their risk for falls and their risk for harm from being anticoagulated if they were to fall and suffer something like an intracranial hemorrhage. Now, there's no definitive evidence that the risk for falls leading to intracranial hemorrhage in patients on oral anticoagulants outweighs their treatment benefit. But still, we find ourselves having the discussion about should they be on a medication that has a good reversal agent, one that is readily accessible in their area. Some of the newer direct oral anticoagulants now have reversal agents that are available. Of course, warfarin has a reversal agent that's been available for some time, but it comes with significant dietary restrictions, need for increased lab measurements, and all of the medication interactions that uh, come with warfarin therapy. And so it can be a difficult choice to make in the elderly population. If their creatinine clearance is sufficient, it's above 30, then that elderly patient is likely still a good candidate for a direct oral anticoagulant agent, something like rivaroxaban or apixaban. And lastly, one controversial case you might come across would be a patient with a distal calf vein DVT. These patients have been studied and placed on anticoagulants and haven't been proven to have a benefit from being anticoagulated, but they have had some of the increased risk of bleeding. And so current guidelines give you two options, either serial imaging for surveillance of thrombus progression in a time window of about one to two weeks or sooner if they develop new symptoms, or just placing the patient on anticoagulation. Some of the things that might lean you toward placing them on anticoagulation are historical. Things like, do they have a history of prior DVT, or an active malignancy, or is this an unprovoked DVT, or are they currently inpatient? Those are the kinds of things that fall into consideration when we're discussing whether or not to anticoagulate someone with a distal calf DVT. So yes, DVT is a common problem, and yes, most people are going to end up on a direct oral anticoagulant medication for the next three months. But if it's provoked, if they have cancer, if they're pregnant, if their physical exam shows some alarming findings like a white extremity or severe excruciating pain with poor pulses, there are some serious complications, some increased morbidity and mortality, and some fine decision making that you have to do depending on the clinical scenario. And so overall, I found this article to be exceptionally helpful. And again, I highly encourage you to go and read the entire article and then get your CME credit. And while you're on the website, there is a new option for you to consider for your subscription to emergency medicine practice or pediatric emergency medicine practice. That is the auto renew. You're familiar with this from multiple other subscriptions, but this is actually a method to obtain a guaranteed discount 
of at least 15% on renewal, along with the peace of mind that you're getting uninterrupted access to all of the previous issues, your CME data, and all of the outstanding references at ebmedicine.net. So go to the website, select your auto renew, and enjoy the discount. And that's a wrap for this issue of Amplify. Until next month, I'm your host, Sam Ashu. Stay safe, everyone.